You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. So here we go. Last night, we expounded Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Look at me. I'm just moving freely. I just, the beast has been unleashed. Last night, we expounded Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And we were amazed, weren't we? Micah, right out of the gate, he sets before us a vision of the living Lord, the judge of the whole cosmos, the whole created order that he has made by the power of his word. Micah sets that vision before us because he knows that what you and I most need is to regain an understanding and a proper appreciation for the greatness, the unrivaled glory of the Lord. And so that's how he begins his book. He begins his book showing us who God really is. And so this is, we also saw last night that the book introduces us to one of the main themes right out of the gate in the first nine verses. We see the main theme that God is coming to judge the transgressions of his people. And then wonderfully today in our passage, we'll also see the second main theme which is God is coming to restore and pardon the remnant of his people. Now we've focused on God's judgment last night, and this theme of God's coming judgment dominates from Micah 1-2 all the way to chapter 2, verse 11. Let me give you an example. Turn in your Bibles to Micah 2 and look at, look at the first few verses of Micah chapter 2. Micah is exposing... What is actually motivating the idolatry among God's people? And what is it? What's motivating their idolatry? Greed. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Greed. They want the freedom to chase the American dream, so to speak. (laughs) They want the freedom to, to build their portfolios, to climb the social ladder, to join all the right country clubs, to have their children join all the right social groups and be in the the right, proper settings. They want the freedom to chase that with full abandon. They want the freedom, so to speak, to ignore what God says in his law about how his people are to treat the socioeconomically disadvantaged. Do we remember that on the plains of Moab, right before God's people are sent in to take possession of the promised land. Do we remember that on the plains of Moab, Moses preaches to the people? And in that sermon, he very beautifully, very concretely, tells God's people exactly what God expects of them. And I'll tell you, as you study the laws of Deuteronomy, one of the major themes that shapes the whole thing is God's passion for the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. God, when he reveals himself in in Deuteronomy 10, he says, listen, I'm the mighty God. I'm the great and awesome Lord. And you want to know what I did with my privilege? I focused it on executing justice for the fatherless, for the widow, for the sojourner. I am the mighty God who owns all things and what I've done with my power and my privilege is steward it to the advantage of poor people, including you who were slaves in Egypt, whom I saw fit to deliver. 
And then on that basis, he goes out throughout his law explaining how they are to use their farms, use their crops for the advancement of their poor brothers and sisters in the, in the Hebrew covenant um, community. So God has made plain to them how he wants them to steward their wealth, but that is not what God's people are doing, and Micah is calling them out. He's calling them out for their greed. In Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, the prophet is bringing their dark motives into broad daylight. Look with me at these first two verses. Now here, the, the prophet is pronouncing a woe a curse on God's people. Let me ask you this. How do I keep it? It's, you're doing fine. I mean, we, it, we can't see it, so it might feel weird. Well, no, but it keeps coming down. It, it will, but it won't, these won't let it fall. Okay, so I should just, it, yeah. it'll... Yeah, it just, it'll just do. All right. I'll do, I'll do me. Yeah, I know. My movement is causing my, you know, whatever. <laughs> Ladies, you can't win them all. That's, that's what I'm here to prove. Okay. Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And in these verses, we're about to read them in a moment, the prophet is pronouncing a prophetic woe, a curse on these wealthy landowners in Judah who are, you know, he, he portrays them as having the power to make business transactions from the comfort of their bed. You know, they're the ones with all the purchasing power. They're the ones who are elite. They can come up with financial plans while they're lying in the comfort of their own home. And then they're actually the ones who have the power to implement those plans the next day. They're the socially, economically empowered of the day. But here's what Michael sa Micah says. Those plans you're making in your beds, they're wickedness. They're evil. Why? Because they lead to the oppression of poor. Okay, here we go. Here's what Micah says. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and so seize them, houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. These wealthy residents of Judah are building their portfolios at the expense of the poor, now, whether or not they're aware of it, their economic plans are leading to the further disadvantaging of disadvantaged people. The rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. Those who have socioeconomic advantage will become more advantaged and those who are socioeconomically marginalized will become more marginalized. The gap will continue to grow. And so... These people are very religious, but what the Lord Jesus would say about them is that you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. In your liturgies, in your song singing, in your church attendance, you have neglected the weightier things of the law. Now Micah warns them in verse 3, look, he warns them that on account of their relentless pursuit of prosperity, on account of their greed... God's judgment will come. And here's what he says in verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family, which is his family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. Now surely, I mean, we're, we're here wrestling with these hard words. Surely Micah's announcement of God's coming judgment was enough to lead these people to, to turn from their sin, to repent, right? Wrong. What do they do? Well, in the passage we're going to read this morning, they actively oppose Micah's message. 
They set up preachers, false lying preachers, to oppose Micah's message and then to tell them exactly what they want to hear, to justify their selfish ambition and their greed. They say, listen, God's judgment isn't going to come. We're his people, right? He's put his temple in our midst. And he's a really patient God, right? He's the God of grace. He has no ethical claim on us. Don't listen to Micah. He's just a Debbie Downer. (laughs) Okay, let's read now. Micah 2, verses 6 through 13. In response to Micah's warning that God will judge these people because of their greed, here's what the people say. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? In other words, God's commands are a source of joy for the one who embraces them. (laughs) They're a benefit to the one who loves him. Verse 8, But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. In other words, your pursuit of your own prosperity is robbing people of theirs. Verse 10, arise and go, for this is no place to rest. In other words, the Lord gave the promised land to his people that it would be a resting place. They have corrupted it. They have polluted it. Their relentless pursuit of prosperity has led to the robbing of rest of their brothers and sisters in the community. Verse 10, Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. So these lying preachers are saying, Eat, drink, be merry. Disgrace will not overtake you. God is the God of grace. And now Micah turns with no clear logical connection from verse 11 to verse 12, and here's what he says. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to switch microphones. Okay. We do that. Perfect. Or can you all hear me like this? All right, I'm just going to, is that all right? Yeah, switch it. Yeah, no, I'm just going to, is it okay if I just talk? In the back, can you hear Okay. Perfect. I tell you what, sometimes it pays to be loud. <laughs> All right. This passage that we just read, it reveals at least, at least two fundamental truths that we have to understand about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, verses 6 through 11 reveals the extent of our resolve to resist God apart from Christ. 
the extent of our resolve to resist God apart from Christ. And then gloriously, verses 12 through 13, reveal to us the extent of God's commitment to rescue us in Christ. The extent of God's commitment to rescue us in Christ. Apart from Christ, you and I would be utterly lost, blind in our sin and idolatry. In our sin and rebellion against God, we have made ourselves enemies of God. We've actively engaged in hostility against our Maker. We see a picture of human sinful resistance to God in verses 6 through 11. Micah's neighbors are resolved to resist God. And they're foolishly defiant about their corruption. Let me illustrate foolish defiance about corruption with a personal story. Something that I said to my ministry assistant just a few weeks ago. On this particular occasion, I was frantically working to meet a deadline. The trouble is, I'm always frantically working to meet a deadline. I don't know about you all, but I'm a chronic overcommitter. And I don't fully understand the psychology of it, but basically when someone I love expresses a need, I feel like I've got to meet it. So my, my calendar is almost always chock full of urgent daily deadlines. I'm a chronic overcommitter. I'm sick. <laughs> now this morning, I, I came in, this particular morning I'm describing, I came in and my ministry assistant took one look at me. She saw my disheveled hair and the bags under my eyes and she knew it had been one of those nights. And I said, Jess, I'm sick. I'm so sick that I don't even want to be well. Micah's neighbors are so sick that they don't even want to be well. They're so lost, they don't even want to be found. They're so entrenched in greed and selfish ambition that they don't want to be made well. They don't want to receive justice and live in justice. <laughs> that, that is the, the case that we see. We see that in the way that they're rejecting Micah and rejecting his preaching. Well, let's think for a moment, what's their strategy? How are they rejecting Micah? Look at the passage. How are they rejecting his preaching? Here's something that we Presbyterians like to do. Perhaps you Episcopalians do as well. They're using theology. <laughs> they are aiming to silence the living God by appropriating distorted theology. They are bludgeoning God's messenger with distortions. They've surrounded themselves with, with a bunch of lying preachers who will tell them exactly what they want to hear. They've carefully curated an echo chamber of distortion. We see elsewhere in Micah that these preachers are trying to justify, again, you read Micah this week, they're actively trying to justify the relentless pursuit of prosperity in a way that further disadvantages the poor. They're justifying prosperity and greed. They're saying, listen, guys, don't listen to Micah. He's just a crazy fundamentalist. You're not sick. You're fine. Listen, God put his temple in your midst, and he's the God of grace, right? We've always heard he's a patient God, right? Has his patience run out? No. God just wants you to be happy. 
He doesn't want you to feel guilty about rules for holy living. Disgrace will not overtake us. You won't surely die. You see, these lying preachers described in Micah 2 are actually promoting what we like to call cheap grace. They're claiming that because God has chosen to redeem this nation and put his temple there, that they're safe, that they're immune to God and to the ethical authority of God's word. They think, as we mentioned last night, that by engaging in religious services and religious performances, that that's all God wants. That's all he's looking for. All of this, their way of thinking, it reveals that these people do not want a covenantal relationship with God. They want a transactional one. You know, in a covenantal relationship, God is the covenant king, and he performs mighty acts on behalf of his people. And then he brings them into relationship with him so that he in his grace might shape them and transform them to become those who also steward their wealth and privilege for the sake of the disadvantaged. They also become gracious like he. That's what a covenant relationship is all about. It's a family relationship of mutual love. But these people don't want a king. They want an idol. They want an idol that they can manipulate that yes, they still want to be religious. They still want to say their liturgies. They still want to sing their songs, but they want to do so on their terms. They want a transactional relationship. They feel as if through their religious service, God is in their debt. Their distorted theology, Micah shows us again and again, it's driven by their greed. They're domesticating God's word so that they can resist him. Now, what's God's verdict on this? Look at verse 8. My people have risen up as an enemy. Now, here's something that we recognize. Using distorted theology to tame God is about the oldest trick in the book. (laughs) Micah's neighbors are not novices. And the same phenomenon happens today. Here's the main reason, humanly speaking, for for why people embrace false teaching. It's so that they can indulge the passions of their flesh. Right? We recall Paul in the New Testament again and again is showing us that. People latch on to false teaching as a mechanism to indulge self-centeredness. Here's what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy um, 4. Preach the word. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, like I did a moment ago, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. In every case that I've seen of a group of, or a body of false teaching taking hold in a community, it has been because that particular distorted theological doctrine, that system, somehow, quote-unquote, gives permission to these people to indulge some kind of self-centered passion. It's a way you adopt this false teaching so that you can live however you want. 
It's a way of domesticating God's word. It's because we, in our flesh, apart from Christ, we are resolved to resist God. And we will even use theology in that. Lying preachers and the people who pay their salaries aren't just problems out there, are they? They're problems in here, starting right here. It's a problem in this room. We in this room are just as vulnerable as Micah's neighbors to false teaching. We can be enticed by false teachers because the God that they're selling us doesn't threaten us, doesn't confront us, doesn't cost us anything, doesn't challenge our assumptions or the way we want to live our life. These teachers give us the sense that we can manifest our own destiny. You know, we can write our own story. We are the ones who are in control. Let me flesh this out by giving three examples of contemporary false teaching that in my last year of being in the South again, that I've seen take hold in the South among church-going Southerners. You know, sometimes we evangelicals, we slap the label gospel-centered on something and think that that just guarantees it's going to be good theology, but that's just not the case. The first example of false teaching that's popular that I see today is the therapeutic gospel. The therapeutic gospel teaches that God is your heavenly therapist. His principal objective is for you to be emotionally prosperous, to be a whole person on the inside. He's like a really devoted yoga instructor. I've never done yoga. I just can imagine. He's like a really devoted yoga instructor. He's the God of grace who would never place demands on you. He would never give you more than you can handle. He'd never test you. He'd never call you to do something difficult because remember, his main concern is your emotional tranquility, your, your inner peace. God, in fact, has one main prescription for you, his child. Your self-care. No matter what you do in all of life, do not sacrifice your me time. Your emotional health is the most important thing to God. You see, sisters, listen. You know, Jesus sacrificed a lot in his life so that you don't have to. You know, Jesus met the demands of God's law so that God's word no longer has any ethical authority on you. That's the teaching of the therapeutic gospel. It's that God wants me and my children, whom I don't have, but you know what I mean. Come on, illustration. (laughs) God wants us and our families to, to be emotionally prosperous and whole. And you know what that does? It enables us to engage in self-centered living, self-focus. Let me give you a second example that I see a false teaching that is presently prevalent among southern church-going women. A second example is the self-help gospel. The self-help gospel teaches that God is your personal life coach. Now, this resembles the therapeutic gospel, but the self-help gospel focuses more on ambition and success and being the best you you can be. According to the the self-help gospel, God exists to motivate you, to shout out encouragement to you, while you become the best version of yourself you can be. He wants to make you the most productive, the most successful you you can be. He aims to advance your professional ambitions 
and to make you a more competent, self-actualized person. It goes a little something like this. Girl, wash your face. Here are ten steps to get a handle on your life and to become the change agent that God intends you to be. Unleash your potential. Pull yourselves up from your bootstraps and get going. You're worth it. You got this, girl. You write your own story. Nobody writes your story for you. You are the hero of your own story. And stop apologizing for being you. Just go, girl. You got it. Hashtag blessed. (laughs) The therapeutic gospel, the self-help gospel. And now let me give a third example. And don't, I want to warn you, I'm going to spend the most time on this third example. A third example of contemporary false teaching that I see taking hold among southern church-going women, including us. It's the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel teaches that God intends for his people to be prosperous, wealthy, and happy in life. Living in God's blessing means having our bank accounts grow, having people like us, having success and favor in life. That's what it means for God to love us, is that he brings about these blessings in our life. Now, let's take a moment and think, what is so appealing about these prosperity preachers. We want what they're selling. (laughs) Who in here doesn't want that? (laughs) We want the life that they pretend to have the authority to offer us. The trouble is, of course, that the prosperity gospel distorts God. And so it distorts the gospel. The gospel featuring the God-man taking on flesh and dying in our place. And among the many, many tragedies of the prosperity gospel is this. It leads to the further oppression of vulnerable, suffering people because suffering is seen as a sign of God's disfavor. The prosperity gospel commends the growing gap between the wealthy and the poor. It's like as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, it slaps an aluminum fish on that gap and says that, oh, the wealthy are getting wealthier because it's a sign of God's favor. Now let me zoom in a bit and highlight a particular way that I think, I guess I might call it the evangelical version of the prosperity gospel. One way that this sort of prosperity gospel type of thinking I see taking root among southern evangelical women, and I don't just mean evangelical, those who take the political title of evangelical. I mean women like you and me. We Americans love our self-reliance and we love our pragmatism. Even if we don't want to admit it, we like to believe that God helps those who help themselves. And sometimes deep down, we believe that the, even the financial prosperity that we experience in this life is somehow because we deserve it. You know, that Protestant work ethic, we've earned it. We've reached the place of our prosperity because, well, wouldn't you think we would? Because we're the people that have God's favor. We've worked hard enough. We've, we've made all the right choices. We've played by the right Christian rules. And when that's our line of thinking, imagining that the prosperity we experience is a result of our own favored position, then over time, we're going to be tempted 
to justify greed, to justify the advancement of our bank accounts in a way that diminishes others. We're going to justify greed. And you know what the only way to justify greed is? To distort the Bible and to distort the person and work of Jesus Christ. So bit by bit, our pursuit of prosperity and that self-important pursuit of prosperity, it draws us away from the Bible's vision of how God delights when his people show generosity and kindness, when they steward the blessings that they have for the advancement of the socioeconomically marginalized. We distort that. And actually, our idolatry of prosperity and wealth, it begins to inoculate us to the concerns of the poor and the marginalized. Now, whether we realize it or not, whether we're doing it intentionally or not, when we go with the flow of our culture that is idolizing the God of money and bowing down to the God of prosperity, we become active participants in oppressing poor people in our city. But our idols blind us to the reality of our injustice. The issues Micah raises regarding poverty and the exploitation of poor people are just as relevant today as they were in Micah's day. You and I live in a world filled with impoverished, vulnerable people. Now, in the world, the United States is by far one of the wealthier nations. But even in the United States, we have 39.7 million people living in poverty. That means, in this report that I read, that means that they make less than $33.26 a day. Our country is filled with impoverished, vulnerable people. What's worse is not just the reality of poverty in our country. It's that our United States economic system, every economic system east of Eden is flawed, but our United States economic system tends to to favor the wealthy and grind on the poor. Many of us are aware of the enormous gap between the average wage of a CEO and the average wage of an entry-level employee. Now, this income gap between CEO, entry-level employee, it's been raising since the 1970s. Here's a bit of a shocking statistic. This shocked me. Taking into account inflation. Hear that part. Taking into account inflation. Since 1970, the average CEO's income has risen almost 1,000% as compared to about an 11% rise in the average entry-level employee, a thousand percent, eleven percent. Reports show that a meaningful number of CEOs make over 300 times that of the median salary of their employees. This disparity in income is growing all the time. Now we have recessions and when recessions happen the gap closes a bit, but as soon as the recession is over the gap starts expanding. But our problem in the United States, although that's a huge one, it isn't just the disparity in the income gap. It's disparity in income along ethnic lines. Black households in the United States possess only about one-tenth 
of the median net work worth of white households. Now, I don't know Birmingham that well, so I'm going to share with you a bit about my experience in Memphis, and you all can test and see whether it applies. One estimate I read a few months ago was that the poverty rate among African Americans in Memphis is 2.5 times greater than that of white Memphians. And earnings of African American Memphians continue to be about half of white Americans. Let me say that again. The poverty rate among African Americans in Memphis is 2.5 times greater than that of white Memphians, and earnings of African American Memphians continues to be about half of white Memphians. Now, there are a variety of factors that give rise to these statistics, but let me tell you what one factor is. Greed. Greed among God's people in Memphis. Countless white, socioeconomically empowered Christians in Memphis regularly attend church service, and they imagine week after week that this is all God requires of them. That all God requires is to show up and say liturgies and sing songs and not be advocates for peace and rest and justice in their city. Meanwhile, thousands, at the same time, thousands of our brothers and sisters of color in Memphis are crying out for justice. And yet, many of those Christians who are in power, in places of prestige and influence and socioeconomic influence, they aren't, they aren't stretching a muscle to close the gap, to alleviate the cause of the poor, to, to help to help advance the cause of the marginalized in the city, even even of their own brothers and sisters in the Christian church. They're they're not lifting a finger. They're not looking in their own field, whatever that field may be. We come from a variety of different fields. They're not in their field taking seriously how they might be agents of justice and reconciliation in their particular field. They're not lifting a finger. We aren't sober-minded about the way that our economic system advances the already advantaged and diminishes the cause of the disadvantage. Just like all of the rest of our neighbors, we think that we can go about the relentless pursuit of prosperity with no thought to what it means to be God's people in the midst of a broken economy east of Eden. Now, what I'm not saying is that Memphians Memphians shouldn't participate in the United States economy. As I've said, every economic system east of Eden is broken. What I am saying is that for a Memphian to actively participate in the Memphis economy, that economy that tends to favor the advantaged and and show disfavor to the unadvantaged, disadvantaged rather, for a Memphian to actively participate in that economy without any regard to how she might seek justice and alleviate the brokenness and care for the marginalized. That's active compliance. So if there's an economy that is a racialized economy and I participate in it without any effort to bring justice or any effort to seek to advance the cause of the poor, I am an active participant in racism if it's a racialized economy. That's what I'm saying, and that's what so many of we Memphians refuse to acknowledge, and so we deny justice to our brothers and sisters of color. 
Now, it's not only that. It's that what happens when these issues come up among white Memphians? We tend to oppose the messenger. We oppose the application of the gospel on this issue. We oppose it. And how do we oppose it? With theology. We say a little something like this. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. That's the social justice gospel. You're conflating God's special purposes for his old covenant people in Israel with his different purposes for new covenant Christians in the church. God doesn't care for justice in Memphis the same way he cared for justice in Jerusalem. It's a totally different covenantal economy. Disgrace shall not overcome us. Some of you may have read Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. I did and benefited richly from it years ago. One of the more aha moments for me as I read that book was this. Tim describes that in over 25, I'm operating off of long-term memory, so I, I could be wrong about the number, but in over 25 years of pastoral ministry in Manhattan, he has had countless people come into his office and confess to him all sorts of sins, all sort of idolatry. But in 25 years in Manhattan, he's never had someone come and confess the sin of greed. Greed tends to hide itself from us so that we don't want to repent and we don't want to be informed of our need to repent. It inoculates us. Your brothers and sisters in Memphis, and I hope you will pray for us, we desperately need to regain a vision of the glorious God and the power of his transformational grace. We desperately need that vision and we need that vision of how good God is to lead us to change in our social and economic practices. We Memphians need to repent because all these things are an expression of our resistance to God. What about in Birmingham? There's one common denominator in all three examples of false teaching the therapeutic gospel, the self-help gospel, the prosperity gospel. There's one common denominator. Now, what is that? Me. (laughs) They each reduce the creator of the cosmos to a little godlet that does our bidding, to an idol, an idol whom we can manipulate, on whom we can project whatever our ambitions are, and then he justifies them and says, you go get it. That's, that's the tragedy. And as we've said, tragically, our idols tend to inoculate us from our, to our need for the gospel. And so they destroy us. They eat our lunch. They rob us of rest, as we see in Micah's prophecy. And you know what they also do? They lead us in robbing others of rest. But God will destroy our idols Sisters, apart from Christ, each and every one of us in this room is resolved to resist God. That's what we see in verses 6 through 11. Micah makes plain that his neighbors are so sick, they don't want to be well. They're so lost, they don't want to be found. But thanks be to God, 
That's not Micah's final word. Yes, God will send his people out of exile, away from their resting place. But what will he do beyond the exile? He will redeem his remnant. He will bring them back and gather them. Let's look at verses 12 through 13. That's where we see that the the extent of God's resolve to rescue us in Christ. Though we've sought out all those lying preachers that we crave, God gives us the shepherd king whom we need. And God is committed to gather the remnant of his people, to break us out of captivity and lead us home. In these verses, 12 through 11, Micah is introducing us to the shepherd king, this idea and these themes that he's going to continue to to develop throughout the whole prophecy. Again, I hope you all take time to dig into it this week. The shepherd king is a key concept, a key metaphor, a key way of explaining who God is and how he works. And here we are introduced to the shepherd king. We recall, don't we, how did Micah begin his book? He begins his book by giving us a vision of God, a vision of God who leaves the heavenly temple and shows up. He appears on the earth. Now, how does he close round one of judgment than salvation? He gives us another vision of God who shows up. He appears. Here is an appearance of God. Here's the shepherd king who goes behind enemy lines in our places of exile. He gathers his wandering people. He brings them all together like a protective shepherd, this sheep in a sheepfold. And once every single little lamb is accounted for, he breaks through. He makes a way out of exile and then he leads them home personally. Their king passes before them. This is your shepherd king. Thanks be to God. He rescues his remnant. Now Micah, Micah, well, sorry, not Micah. God, don't get them confused. God partially fulfills this prophecy of Micah 2, 12 through 13. He partially fulfills this prophecy when he brings his people home from Assyrian and Babylonian exile. He brings them home. We see that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. God partially brings to fulfillment this beautiful prophecy of the shepherd king. But of course, God ultimately brings to fulfillment this prophecy of the shepherd king in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, who ends our spiritual exile. Believer in Christ, how resolved is God to rescue you? He sent his son behind enemy lines to come get you. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He sent his son into enemy territory to rescue you from the dominion of darkness, from the tyranny of greed, of idolatry. He has sent his son to do that work in your heart. Let's take a moment and think about what was Jesus' experience when he was on the earth behind enemy lines. He was the poorest of the poor, the most marginalized, and he chose that to rescue you. The Lord Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. And he suffered severe rejection and opposition. We see in this prophecy of Micah, the the faithful prophet being opposed and rejected by God's people. Oh, that is eclipsed 
by the opposition and rejection that Jesus voluntarily took on for me, for you. Even from his closest neighbors in Nazareth. Do you remember what happened when he went to go preach his prophetic message in Nazareth? Here's what Luke says. They were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove Jesus out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They were resolved to resist him. And yet, despite God's people's rejection of Jesus, he remained thoroughly committed, thoroughly resolved to rescue them, to bring rest to them. Do you remember what Jesus says about himself in John 10? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And sisters, that's exactly what Jesus did. Humanity's opposition to God, their resistance, their their resolve to resist God, it comes to ultimate expression in their crucifixion of God's own Son. The Lord Jesus is mocked, stripped, beaten. At the cross, we behold the extent of of our resistance to God. God is rejected. We have opposed the inscripturated word, the Bible, and the word made flesh. And yet on the cross, Jesus didn't just endure humanity's rejection. Now this is something we can't even begin to fathom. When the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful prophet, became sin on the cross, He endured his father's rejection willingly for you. And yet also at the cross, what do we behold? The lamb in victory, taking away the sins of the world. The Lord Jesus not only went behind enemy enemy lines, he used the enemy's weapon against him. He defeated death by dying. He triumphed over the enemy on the cross. He has pronounced victory over death itself. Death, that ancient foe which has afflicted God's people from the beginning. Jesus became the firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? There are a lot of us going to follow. He opened the breach. He made a way. He pierced through the wall of death. And he is firstborn of the dead. And then we're going to get up too. We're going to follow him in this train. Here's how the author of Hebrews says it. He says in, which I just lost it, Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Give me a second. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Through his victory over the grave, Jesus has opened the breach. What does Paul say? He says, those who have been united to him in a death like his shall be united to him in a resurrection like his. And here's what Paul says elsewhere. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that is, stay in the grave, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall all be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? God makes his people, you and me, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, he makes us alive in Christ. He has opened the wall and leads us forth into life. And what you and I experience now, that life in Christ, that is a foretaste of the life that is mine, that is yours in the new heavens and new earth when we are changed, when the perishable takes on the imperishable and the mortal takes on immortality. That is your shepherd king. Behold him. And so what does he aim for us to do now? What kinds of lives ought we lead now that we are made alive in him? We ought to follow in his footsteps. We ought to be women who do justice, who love kindness, who walk humbly with God. Because God loves you so much that he's given you a covenantal relationship with him. A relationship of mutual love in which he aims to change you, to rehabilitate you in righteousness, and to make you his agent of compassion and justice in this world. That is his objective. May we delight in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your word, in Micah 2, 6 through 13, you show us truthfully the extent of our resolve to resist you apart from Christ, even using distorted theology to try to shut you up. And yet, Father, you also show us the extent of your resolve to rescue us in Christ. Though great our sins and sore our woes, your grace much more aboundeth. Father, might you be pleased to keep your word doing its work in our heart as we yield our hearts to you in this book of Micah. We ask this for your sake. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.